Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. I'm Will Sherlin, and on this week's episode, we'll be looking at innovation and anticipating the future, why it pays to be an anticipatory organization, the difference between hard trends and soft trends, and why you're better off skipping what you think is your company's biggest problem rather than solving it. Here with us today to discuss all that and more is Daniel Burris, best-selling author, innovation expert and global futurist, and strategic advisor to Fortune 500 companies like Microsoft, Google, IBM, and Toshiba, just to name a few. Daniel is one of the world's leading futurists on global trends and innovation. He has more than 345,000 followers on LinkedIn, and the New York Times has referred to him as one of the top three business gurus in the technology futurist field. Daniel is the author of six books, including the New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller, Flash Foresight, How to See the Invisible and Do the Impossible, as well as the international bestseller, Technotrends. He appears often on networks like PBS, Fox Business, CNN, and Bloomberg TV, and he writes frequently on the topics of innovation, change, and the future for outlets like CNBC, The Huffington Post, and Wired. Welcome to the podcast, Daniel. Hey, my pleasure to be with you. So let's kick things off today by talking about the importance of what you call being a quote-unquote anticipatory organization. What does that mean, and why is it so vital in today's climate? Well, it is really vital uh, because we have a lot of competencies, but there is a, uh, a competency that we all need that we haven't really had to develop. But at this point in human history, and technological development is essential. For example, we're all good at reacting to change. We're all good at responding to changes. We're uh, already pretty good at crisis management, putting out fires. We spent a lot of time doing that. Uh, we're also good at being um, nimble because, again, there's so much change coming at us. And uh, we have uh, all been uh, very good at learning how to execute strategy extremely well. But that, all of those things, execution, being lean, being able to uh, uh, respond, react, did not help BlackBerry. They did not help Sony. They did not help Hewlett-Packard. Uh, they did not help Dell. And they did not help Blockbuster. And they did not help a host of other companies that were excellent at execution and, and all of those things. In other words, what were they missing? All they were missing was the ability to accurately anticipate. Uh, and what kind of things do you need to anticipate? And that is anticipate problems before they happen, rather than just having a problem and then trying to solve it. Anticipate disruptions before they disrupt. All of the disruptions, by the way, that have disrupted countless companies were there to see clearly. It's that no one had a methodology for looking other than people that I've worked with that I've taught and because uh, obviously I do have a methodology for that. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we also want to be able to anticipate game-changing opportunities that are currently invisible to us. So the, uh, the companies, the organizations, the individuals that can anticipate the future best have the biggest advantage, which leads us to one other little aspect here, and that is that it's uh, keeping up. We all are trying desperately to keep up, but there is no advantage in keeping up. I've yet to hear an advantage in keeping up. 
It's really a fool's game. What I want to do is jump ahead. But the problem with jumping ahead is there's high risk in jumping ahead. But here's the beauty, and that is when you learn the methodologies that I'm going to be sharing with you today, uh, at least parts of those, um, you realize that you can jump ahead with low risk using hard trends and some of the things we'll talk about further in this interview. Uh, one last thing I'll just mention to you very quickly, and that is that it seems that I'm talking about something that is impossible to do. For example, accurately anticipate the future. They, uh, it's common thinking is the only thing that you can predict about the future accurately is death and taxes. And I'm sure we've all heard that. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to uh, uh, meet Rick Wagner, former chairman and CEO of General Motors, and I had a chance to meet him before, just before they went bankrupt. And what he said when he met me, because he knew I was a, a technology forecaster and futurist, and I'd written six uh, best-selling books on the subject, et cetera, et cetera, he came and said to me exactly what most of us think, and that is, well, of course. It's impossible to predict the future. And I responded by saying, well, let's see. It's winter. Next will be spring. I think I'll be right. <laughs> and what I, was sharing, what I was sharing with him is that actually there's a science of cycles that lets you accurately see the future. There's business cycles, weather cycles, biological cycles. There are even sales cycles. I mean, I know when Father's Day will be. I know when Mother's Day will be. I know when Christmas will be 20 years from now. I know when the next presidential election will be. I know all sorts of things. And, and as a matter of fact, when you look at the stock market, Warren Buffett has become extremely wealthy because he understands it's cyclical. When everybody is buying, frankly, he's selling. When everybody is selling, you know what? He's buying because he understands how to use cycles in a positive way. So what I'm getting at is that there's a science of cycles. There's over 300 known repeating cycles that lets you have a handle on the future. But there's another kind of change that economists do not study because economists study cyclical change. And as you probably know, economists have been increasingly wrong. And the reason is they know cyclical change. They don't know this other kind of change. I call it linear change. Once linear change happens, you are changed and you're not going back. For example, once you get a smartphone, you're not going back to a dumb phone. Once the people in China park their bicycle, they're not going back to uh, and get a car. They're not going back to the bike. Once the people in India get refrigeration for their home, uh, they're not going to say, we don't need refrigerators. So I think once you understand the linear changes that are taking place, and the amazing opportunity, as well as problems that are caused by those, that are fully predictable, you start to see the future in a way you couldn't have seen it before. Okay, got it. And you talked a little bit in that answer about, uh, about the methodology. I know that hard trends and soft trends are, are one part of the methodology. Hard power and soft power are common terms these days that many in the audience are probably familiar with. What are hard trends and soft trends? Yeah, it's very powerful. First of all, this isn't just an idea that I've come up with recently and I'm now sharing it with you. Uh, I started Birth Research, uh, as you might know, I've started six companies over the years, but I started Birth Research 31 years ago and developed the methodology for hard trends, soft trends. So it's a, 
got over 30 years of uh, track record and history of being able to create accurate forecasts. And it has changed how companies like Deloitte and IBM and others plan their future. So it's a, an established uh, uh, methodology that has a great track record. You just may not know it. So that's why I'm on your, on your program. <laughs> and let's separate hard trends from soft trends. Hard trends will happen. Absolutely, guaranteed. And by the way, if you don't like them, too bad, they're going to happen anyway. Nothing you can do about it. Soft trends might happen. And the reason most of us don't spend a lot of time looking at trends is because we know some happen and some don't. It's kind of like going to Vegas. It's a crapshoot. But in this case, actually, you can separate them. Uh, so let me give you an example of, uh, of a soft trend. They, by the way, they both look pretty good in the present statistically. Decades ago, uh, the rock star Elvis Presley died, many decades ago. And in the 10 years after his death, every year, there was an increasing number of professional Elvis impersonators. If you would have taken that first 10 years after his death and looked at a graph of how many people were becoming Elvis impersonators, it was, it was going up very, very steady and very, very predictably. As a matter of fact, way back then, I decided to take that little trend line of the first 10 years and project it into the future. And it showed that by the year 2000, one in three Americans would be professional Elvis impersonators. <laughs> Obviously, that was a soft trend that didn't happen. Thank goodness. Yes. Yeah, exactly. But the numbers and the graph line showed that it would. So you have to ask yourself, would anybody in their right mind ever base anything on a soft trend? And the reality is it happens all the time. For example, uh, back around the year 2000, the U.S. government was predicting a trillion-dollar surplus. Well, obviously, that was a soft trend. Unfortunately, they treated it as a hard trend, spent as if it was a hard trend. Oops, that was a soft trend. Just like did someone say years ago, don't tell Kodak, don't tell Polaroid, don't tell Motorola, don't tell Blockbuster about digital technology. Let's keep it a secret from them. And the answer, as you might guess, is no, there was no secret. Those companies treated digital technology as a soft trend. Oops, that was a hard trend. Wrong, wrong move. So being able to separate the things that will happen, hard trends, from the soft trends that might happen, very important aspect. So I've given you a rough idea of soft trends, but let me say one more thing about soft trends, and that is I like them. You might think I don't like them. Actually, I like them. You see, a hard trend you can't change. A soft trend you can. You can influence it. So, for example, in the United States, uh, there is a growing problem with obesity. And it's been going up, up, up every year. Uh, so you could predict 20 years out using that trend line that almost all of us will be extremely obese. And the numbers would support that. Matter of fact, the same is true with Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and other diseases. I just saw a report from the federal government that was giving predictions on by 2025 we'll have these numbers, and they gave specific numbers of people with those diseases. By the way, those are soft trends, not hard trends. They're not future facts. Why? Because we can do something about those. We can make, we can affect them, or not. You can sit back and let them happen, 
or we can say no, right? We're going to do something about obesity. We're going to do something. We've got some new drugs and new technologies for diabetics. So separating the hard from the soft becomes extremely powerful. And I like soft, once again, because I can change that. Let's take a few seconds to just talk about hard trends. Again, these are the things that will happen. There are three primary drivers of hard trends. One of them, as you might guess, well, let's pick one that, that may not seem as obvious, demographics. So uh, in the United States, we've got 78 million baby boomers. By the way, it's a hard trend. They will get older. They're not going to all of a sudden get younger. And we can predict a lot of things about their future if you take a look. Uh, for example, uh, you might not have been able to predict when, after World War II when all those guys got home, that there would be a whole bunch of babies born nine months later. Maybe you couldn't have predicted that. But, and, of course, there weren't enough hospitals because there were so many. And then how long do you have before those kids go to kindergarten? Well, you have quite a bit of time, quite a few years before kindergarten, but yet we didn't build any kindergartens. All of a sudden, there weren't enough kindergartens. And then how much time do you have before they go to high school? Well, you've got quite a few years. You've got years to go before you go to high school. Uh, yet we didn't build any high school, any new high schools to accommodate them until all of a sudden there weren't enough high schools when they, the, the leading edge of the baby boomers got there. And by the way, in the, in the future, there won't be enough cemeteries because uh, not everyone is going to want to be cremated, and some religions say you can't be cremated. By the way, that will happen. Let me give you, I, I said there were three. Let me give you the other two for hard crime drivers. Another one, government regulations. Amazing creators of hard trends um, because these are laws. For example, there was a law that was passed in California recently that said all kindergartners and first graders by next year have to have not just fiction books that they read, but there has to be nonfiction books. As a matter of fact, there's got to be a 50-50 mix. They can be electronic books, but they got to have something other than just fiction books. So like the little engine that could as a fiction book. So it turns out that's a law. Now, you and I won't debate whether it's a good law or not because it's a law. The point is, hey, that's got to happen by next year. So what does that mean? Well, I just met a young entrepreneur that read that law and is creating a whole series of uh, e-books that are nonfiction for, for young kids like this. And by law, the school districts are going to have to buy them. Well, that's, not, that's called opportunity. I could give you countless opportunities that laws create. So you need to be able to not just look at regulation and say, boy, I hate regulation. I say get over it and realize there's amazing opportunities because now you've got something that is a law with a specific date that says something's going to have to happen by that date. The third and final one that I'll mention with you very quickly is technology. And technology, of course, makes the impossible possible. Let's face it, uh, we couldn't have done this interview 200 years ago. Uh, technology allows this to go to the moon way back in the late 60s. So we can do amazing things. Well, at this point in time, technology is, not, is being created and being implemented at such super fast and, by the way, predictable speeds that it creates extremely big opportunities. So um, using hard trends, you can clearly see, let's just talk about the iPhone 7 and how predictable it is. And you might think, wow, we don't even have the iPhone 6 yet. 
no one knows about the iPhone 7. They, an Apple guy hasn't left that in the bar, you know what I mean? <laughs> and right. and uh, Exactly. So what I would say is, well, let's just do a little survey here. Um, you think the iPhone 7 will have a faster processing chip than the iPhone 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, or 1? And the answer is, yes. Are you certain? The answer is, yeah. Uh, do you think it's going to be impossible for them to fit more bits of data in there? Or is it just packed too full? It can't get any more. And you already know, I'll be able to get more in there. Matter of fact, I bought a 40 gigabyte thumb drive on a on Amazon the other day for, I think, uh, for 30 bucks or something like that. Well, that was impossible a couple of years ago, but it isn't today. And by the way, you know that will be even more in that thumb drive next year and the year after. And you can be certain about that. Is the cloud getting full? Well, you and I know the cloud is not getting full. And we got 3G wireless and 4G wireless. Is that it? And the answer is, well, actually, no, we're going to have 5G and 6G. Actually, South Korea is already spending $1.5 to implement 5G, which is a 1,000 times faster than 4G. So the reality is technology is quite predictable. Every disruption is there to see. If you take a look at my 1993 book, Technotrends, you saw me talking about social media and putting accurate dates on it back in 93. You saw me talking about what we have come to call iPhones and uh uh, and apps and all that. I was talking about that in 93 with accurate time frames because, again, I've written six books about it uh, using these methodologies. So I think what, you can, what you'll find is there really aren't surprises, only surprises to people that don't understand hard trends and don't know how and where to look. And, and by the way, before I go any further, let me just mention I spent a lot of time writing about hard trends and soft trends and certainty in my latest uh, New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller, Flash Foresight. So anybody that's interested, they can check that book out and uh, find more since we only have limited time in this conversation. Sure. Okay, so so let me ask. You mentioned, well, we talked a lot about technology, and you mentioned uh, your book, Techno Trends, from 1993, in which you foresaw you know, many of the coming technological changes. Other than looking at things through the lens of hard trends and soft trends, how do you get in the in the mindset to really anticipate what's going to be coming, you know, 5, 10, 15 years down the line? Well, you can do that. And again, by separating the hard trends from the soft trends, you can get accurate time frames. For example, if you go back to my list of the hundreds of predictions I made in 1983 about the year 2000, which wasn't 20 years, but it was close. Uh, you know, they were, none of them were off more than a year. For example, one of them was we would, this is 1983, we would sequence the human gene code in the year 2000. Well, that's what we did. Even though the project wasn't started until 1990, and this was a 1983 prediction. So the methodologies that I describe in my book, Flash Foresight, and I'm describing with you right now, do indeed work with time frames. So you brought up the subject. Let me just help our listeners here to understand how you can get time frames and why so much of it is predictable. And that is what I call the three digital accelerators. There are three things that are giving us total predictability to, how, uh, to the time frames of the things that I'm talking about. Uh, one of them, and, and you probably you know about the three, but you just really, you, you think you know, but you don't. So let me describe them. One of them is Moore's Law, and I'm sure most of us understand Moore's Law. Processing power doubles 
every 18 months as the price drops in half. It's been around for many decades. As a matter of fact, I first discovered Moore's Law back in 1983, and because I had taught biology and physics at one time, I could tell it was going to be a good law and it would hold up, even though most people didn't know about it at that time. Mm-hmm. And um, you've got to remember, with Moore's Law saying that something will double, in this case, processing power, Doubling doesn't create a nice even chart. It creates a chart or a graph that looks more like a hockey stick. To go from a 5 megahertz chip with doubling to get to a 500 megahertz chip, that took 20 years. But to double it took eight months, and that was years ago. In other words, right now in that progression of processing power and doubling, we are now about where a hockey player would put their hands. In other words, it's going up unbelievably fast every year because we spent the slow time in the 80s and 90s when it was going up relatively slowly. Um, And uh, so that's the processing power part, but there are three change accelerators. And I defined uh, the other two back in 1983. One of them is the law of storage. The other one is the law of bandwidth. And bandwidth, uh, of course, uh, if you think to yourself, some of you might remember the 512K modem. Uh, by the way, if you tried one today, you'd be very disappointed at how amazingly slow it was. So, um, But today, it's much faster. And by the way, tomorrow it'll be predictably even more faster. You can tell exactly how predictable it'll be in five years or ten years. It's all right there for us to see, just as storage is. Because at one time, uh, you know, I remember my first... Uh, uh, PC, as well as my first Macintosh, didn't even have a hard drive. Uh, you just had a floppy disk. I mean, I'm showing my age here, but I'm just letting you know. And I, luckily, I was a young kid at the time. But my point I'm making is, whoa, things have really changed. Now we can put it all in the cloud, for that matter, and have almost infinite storage. So the processing power, bandwidth, and storage is a powerful trifecta. It impacts every single business process. Whether it's sales, marketing, doesn't matter. It impacts medicine. It impacts how good an artificial knee will be and what the next one will be like. If you look at 3D printing or any other new technology like drones that are taking place, all of those progress because of those three drivers, which I've been tracking for over 30 years and are extremely predictable. Okay, got it. And yet there's an article in the Wall Street Journal today about – Google launching satellites into space. There's been much talk of Project Loon, which is their idea to launch uh, balloons into space, basically, or into the atmosphere to provide uh, internet service to the two-thirds of the world that don't currently have it. And now, I guess, the next iteration of that is they're talking about launching satellites or drones into space uh, to be able to provide that coverage. So, you know, maybe, I guess it's not too far off into the future where everyone in the world will have uh, internet connectivity, whereas now only roughly a third of the world does. Absolutely, and uh, and the other thing here is that uh, about a year ago it, it became it was the same price to make a uh, smartphone as a dumb phone. So why would you want to make a dumb phone when a smartphone is a computer? So in reality, as people get access to phones who didn't have access before, that the phones are having access to are in very rapidly and very increasingly smartphones. Uh, between this year and 2017, which is not long from now, we're going to be selling probably globally around 5 to 6 billion 
uh, smartphones. Well, that means, what does that mean? That means that uh, people that have them now are going to get new ones, and people that don't have them are going to be getting them. So it, it pretty much covers humankind to quite a good extent. Uh, maybe not the, the lowest of low, but quite a, quite a bit of it. Sure. So let's go back to Flash Foresight for a second. In it, you identify seven radical principles that can transform a business. And the one that stuck out to me was, was this, and it's, quote, unquote, take your biggest problem and skip it. So that sounds like almost heretical advice. Can you explain why you would recommend that companies skip their biggest problems? Well, I do it all the time, and it's worked well. Um, you didn't mention it in the introduction, but I started six companies. Uh, three of them were national leaders in the first year. One of them was in aviation. I had 37 national locations in the first year. All of them were profitable in the first year, and I've never had a business loan or business debt. Now, the reason I say that is, hey, I practice what I preach. I don't just write books and give speeches and uh, do consulting. So problem skipping is probably one of my favorite ones. It allows me to accelerate success. So now that I've given you that, hey, this works, let me give you an example of it. Uh, let me give you a business example very quickly. I uh, met a few number of years ago with uh, the leaders of Eli Lilly, big drug company, and they said, we got a problem. Well, right away, I knew whatever problem they had, that wasn't it. They were working on the wrong one. And the only way that they would be able to really jump ahead is to skip it. But since they didn't know the principle, I just started to peel the onion back. So here's uh, to get the real problem. So it, it could be you could skip the one they thought they had. So let me just describe it this way. I said, okay, what's your problem? And they said, our problem is we've got to hire about 2,000 additional Ph.D. researchers well, and a problem is we don't have the money. Okay, so right away I knew that wasn't it. We could skip that. But I had to figure out how to do it. So I asked the question, why? By the way, why is how you, what I call, peel the onion to get down to the real problem, So, which is solvable. So I said, uh, why do you need those researchers? And I said, well, you got to understand we're a drug company. And uh, uh, our stock price is in direct proportion how many drugs we have in the pipeline. To get drugs in the pipeline, uh, we need to solve molecular problems. To solve molecular problems, we need researchers, and we don't have a, new, a lot of drugs in the pipeline. Our stock is down. To be able to boost that up, we need those researchers to solve those molecular problems. We figure we need at least 2,000. Again, our problem is we don't have the budget. So then I applied the skip it principle. I said, well, good, let's skip that. So here's what we did. Uh, we put all of their molecular problems on the internet in a dozen languages and said, we pay for solutions. And it didn't take long, and they had thousands and thousands and thousands of researchers from all over the world submitting solutions to Eli Lilly for those molecular problems, and uh, Eli Lilly purchased the solutions they wanted to purchase. So was the problem that they thought they had, and that is we don't have the budget to hire 2,000 PhD researchers, was that something that could be skipped? And the answer is completely. And was there a solution that you could actually do to that seemingly impossible problem? And the answer is absolutely. So I like to skip problems altogether. As a matter of fact, uh, I ran into somebody recently who said, I'm trying to save money. I can't save money. I try hard, but I can't do it. And I said, uh, well, I think you ought to skip trying to save money and start working at perfecting how you spend money. Uh, that 
actually is more likely to get you what you're trying to achieve. And uh, and by the way, I, it's already starting to work for that person. So whatever problem they got, that's not it. They're working on the wrong one. The only way to get to the right one, which actually is solvable, is to skip the one you think you have. Okay, got it. That's a that's a great anecdote. It makes perfect sense. So one more one more question that I want to ask. Uh, Something you talk about in your writing that I haven't heard about before is that of the 3D web. Can you explain that concept and talk a little bit about what it will look like and some of the technologies that it will hinge on? Absolutely. And uh, with the 3D web, we're talking about a 3D web browser. Right now, all of your inter- all of the internet web pages that we look at, look at all of our web pages are really like a flat piece of paper. It's got an embedded video, it's got a hyperlink, it's got nice pictures, some graphics. It's like a piece of paper with a video. Mm-hmm. But what I'm talking here is a browser that actually looks more like a video game you play on Xbox or a PlayStation with interspatial three-dimensionality to that website, as well as not just going inside like you do in playing a video game, meaning you're going in an interspatial world, um, but you also have things that stick out like a 3D movie, but without wearing glasses. By the way, the reason you don't have to wear the glasses is when you're watching a big movie in your home or in a theater, you have to wear glasses to see the 3D because there's a wide angle of people watching it. So the way they make the 3D work has to appear work for people not in the center of the stage or the screen. But in the case of your main computer now being your tablet and your smartphone, which only has one viewer, you can accomplish 3D very easily without the glasses. It's already starting to happen with games, by the way. So when you've got a 3D web browser and now 3D websites, that's game-changing and what it can be done. And I already have a prototype on my own computer right now on my laptop of a 3D web browser, so it's pretty easy to predict the future when you're already using it. <laughs> Matter of fact, let me just let me just mention that uh, for those of you who are interested in 3D printing and uh, uh, all of the amazing things that are taking place, um, you could go if you're a member of LinkedIn. Uh, I'm one of the top uh, 30 LinkedIn influencers, uh, and I write a blog a week on these kinds of subjects. It doesn't cost you any money to to follow me on there. You could do that. And, of course, uh, I write a blog with 3 million monthly readers, so obviously there's people that like it. And uh, you can go to Burrus, B-U-R-R-U-S dot com, and get a lot more on this. And, uh, you know, so there's a lot of resources out there. And, of course, I think you'd really like Flash Foresight. Yes, and 345,000-plus people on LinkedIn cannot be wrong. That's a That seems like a hard trend to me. Yeah, exactly. Uh, by the way, also, for those of you who like Twitter, uh, if you go to my name, Daniel Burris, I've, on Twitter, uh, I've got, a, you know, I, I think maybe 100,000 followers on there. And because I, I put out interesting new developments, hard trends, as well as guiding principles. So, you know, check that out, too. I think you'd like it. Okay, great. So we're running a, a little low on time here, Daniel. Any uh, Any final words of wisdom for listeners? Uh, that may be looking to digest all of this into something they can use in their everyday work lives? Absolutely. Let me give you a principle right off the bat you need to understand, and that is if it can be done, it will be done, and if you don't do it, someone else will. What I mean by that is when you can see a hard trend that is going to happen, it's right there in front of you, 
what you have to do is now you have a choice. You can be the disruptor or the disrupted. So being disrupted is actually a choice. You just have to take the time to look. Secondly, being busy is not going to help you. I mentioned General Motors in the beginning. Uh, where the top five executives of General Motors really busy every day for the year before they went bankrupt? The answer is yes. Being busy didn't, didn't help them. It's not going to help you either. You need to take a little time to plug into your future, to think about it, uh, because it's where you're going to spend the rest of your life. So let's take a little time to plan our future. Let's shape it actively rather than have somebody else shape it for us. Okay, nice. Great, great words of wisdom and great words to close on. Uh, Daniel, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate the insight into uh, why it's so important for organizations and companies to become anticipatory organizations in this era where the only constant is change. You got it. Thank you. Thanks very much to Daniel Burris for joining us this week. And thank you for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune into next week's episode when we're very excited to have Shubber Ali. Vice President of Strategic Innovation at Salesforce on the podcast to talk about the intersection of technology and innovation. The perfect storm of forces that are disrupting businesses in all verticals today. The opportunities available for companies that can figure out how to harness these technologies and what it's like to go to work every day at a company that has been named the most innovative company in the world by Forbes for three years running. Thanks again for joining us. And we'll see you next week.